Let's pray. Father, we do sing your wisdom. We sing your praises this morning because you are worthy, worthy of every song we could sing, every praise we could offer. So, Lord, we ask once more that you would receive our worship as now we turn to your word, or that you would meet us as we dive into your word to understand its meaning and to see Christ, Lord, we pray with greater clarity than maybe when we came here. Lord, our one request this morning is that Christ would be exalted and we would see him clearly. And we pray also, Father, that you would uh, be with us, near us, through your spirit uh, to illumine and apply your word to our hearts. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. And as you turn there, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your prayers and encouragement as we've welcomed our fourth child into the world. Uh, Savannah and baby Helen are both alive and doing well. And hopefully they'll uh, be reunited with us corporately soon enough. Um, We're grateful, though. We're grateful for your prayers, for your cards, meals, encouragement. And all of that is, is just a real blessing to us. It is such a joy, really, to be your pastor, uh, to have the honor and uh, to serve you in the way that the Lord has appointed. So we're just grateful for you guys. We love you. Thank you. Uh, that's for me and Savannah uh, and for my children, too, because, because of you guys, our children are less, um, they're more cared for than they would have been otherwise if we were scrambling to try to provide meals and all of that. So thank you. We feel loved and we appreciate your prayers. Now, Okay, we come to the study of the Word of God. Mark chapter 5. And this morning we're back in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And if you're new with us, we've been working our way through this Gospel verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in the middle of the first major section of the Gospel of Mark. that spans chapter 1, verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 8 and verse 26. And the point of this initial section is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah King. The Messiah and King promised in the Old Testament. And what we've seen as we've worked our way through chapter 1, now to chapter 5, is over and over again, we see the power and authority of Jesus. So much so that I think every sermon that I've preached up till now could have been something like the power and authority of Jesus here, there, and everywhere. It's, It's power, authority, displayed in such a way that all of us and his audience here looks and sees that the kind of authority that Jesus wields is an authority that belongs to God alone. So we're sort of driven to confess with a centurion at the end of Mark 15, surely this was the Son of God. No one could live like this. No one could do what Jesus did were he not the Son of God. We've seen... His authority over men, over Satan, over unclean spirits, over disease, over Sabbath regulations, over the hearts of men, over storms, and most recently, we saw His authority over a legion of demonic powers. So, uh, there's no question that Mark is wanting to fix our minds on the fact that Jesus is a man uniquely endowed with authority and power that belongs to God alone. And the question before us this morning is this. How does Jesus wield His power and authority? 
In other words, what sort of king is Jesus? How does he exercise his power and authority over his subjects? In the ancient world, kings were often tyrannical, cruel, and power-hungry. And the so-called gods of the ancient world were even more tyrannical, cruel, and power-hungry. They were capricious and unpredictable and had no real affection for humanity at all. They stood aloof from humanity and actually they even would make their lives miserable as a sort of sport. One scholar wrote that no ancient Greek or Roman writer would have been prepared to assume that any of their gods cared for mankind in the aggregate. Meaning that everyone understood that the gods of the ancient world did not care about humanity in the least. They had no sympathy, no compassion, no love for people at all. Which is the exact opposite of what we see in our text this morning. We see in this text a king and a savior who is neither capricious nor cold towards humanity, but is present and concerned about his people at every level. He is a God who gladly meets the needs of his very needy people. In fact, there is something in the very nature of God that provokes him to action when he sees you in need. And that something, in a word, is called his mercy. His mercy. A.W. Pink, the English Bible teacher, said that God's mercy is his ready inclination to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. God's mercy is his ready inclination to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. And that's exactly right. God's mercy, put another way, is that internal perfection that moves him to look upon you in your weakness and say, I understand how hard it is for you. I understand the weakness of your flesh. I hate to see you struggle this way. And it moves me to act for you. John MacArthur said this, God's mercy is a condescending love that reaches out to the needs of fallen creatures without giving thought to their worthiness. I would add, God's mercy is His concern for people that looks at them in their struggle. Do you struggle? We could do a, a poll here. How many of you don't struggle? Uh, and if that's you, you can leave. This sermon is not going to be helpful for you at all. God's mercy is His concern for people that looks at them in their struggles and sees their pain in a fallen world and is moved to help them. That's mercy. And it moves to help in a way that's full of understanding and it comes to His people without reproach. In other words, He doesn't say, you did it again. i got to help you again today. Don't you know there's like billions of other people that need help? And you're coming to me once again for help? That's not mercy. That's not the way that God treats you. And that's exactly, uh, I hope, what we'll all see 
in the text this morning because it's what this text is sort of driving at. And this passage sets before us the reminder that if we come to Jesus in faith, He does not treat us according to our sin or our folly. How many of you have made a foolish mistake this week? Yeah. God does not treat you in Christ according to that folly. We see this morning that He is not like Zeus in the sky that is volatile, unpredictable, ready to strike you down every time you make a mistake. God is a God of mercy. He's a God who remembers your frame, that you are but dust. Meaning that He understands that life in a broken, fallen world is hard and difficult and full of pain. Do you get that? Do you, do you understand that God understands life in this fallen world is hard? He gets it. And because of the cross, Jesus always comes to us clothed in robes of tender mercy and pity when we come to Him in faith. Charles Spurgeon said it well when he wrote, If you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to us, it might be gathered into this one sentence. He was moved with compassion. His tender heart pities all the griefs of His dear people. There is not a pang they have, but the head feels it. He feels it for all their members. Still doth He look upon their imperfections and their infirmities, yet not with anger, not with loss of patience, but with gentleness and sympathy. Is that how you see the Lord coming to you when you've done something really foolish? Spurgeon goes on. Jesus is never happier than when He is relieving and retrieving the forlorn, the abject, and the outcast. He despises not any that confess their sins and seek His mercy. No pride nestles in His dear heart. No sarcastic word rolls off His gracious tongue. No bitter expression falls from His lips. Only mercy. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we get to look at this morning and next week. And we're going to see this type of mercy put on display for us in relationship to three characters that I've given you in the outline there. And what we're going to see as we work through this is really that the passage uh, is two stories that are sort of intertwined together and can't be separated. Mark braids their stories together and so what we'll do is we'll treat this whole section as one unit, but it'll take us a couple weeks to do it. And because the section that I want to read for you is pretty long, I won't ask you to stand this morning, but I will ask you to turn to Mark 5, and we'll start reading at verse 21, and we're going to read the entire section. Okay, Mark 5, verse 21, and we'll go through verse 43. So read along with me. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little girl is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. 
and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had an, a, a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Be healed of your affliction. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. <laughs> Amazing mercy. Amazing mercy. And I want to just walk through this wonderful, wonderful passage using these three characters as a heading for us. Now, if you were listening closely, you heard the interweaving of these two stories. But the connections are actually somewhat deeper than you can get in your first read-through. So I've been reading this all week. And uh, let me point out a couple of connections for you. Both Jairus and the nameless woman are in desperate situations. Jairus, of course, is a male at the top of the social ladder. The nameless woman is poor and totally helpless. They're sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. She's a social outcast at the bottom of societal structure. She's chronically sick with a disease that renders her ceremonially unclean. And she spent all of her money looking for a cure. And she's been this way for 12 years. Jairus' daughter is also sick. We're not told how long she's been sick, but we're told that she's 12 years old. It's an interesting parallel. So 12 years from the onset of the nameless woman's disease and 12 years of life for Jairus' daughter. Now we are good Calvinists and we understand that there are no accidents in the world, right? This is providential. There are no wasted numbers in Scripture. So this is just this amazing parallel here 
in these two stories. And going on a little further, both the healing of the nameless woman and Jairus' daughter involve faith. In fact, you could argue that the main theme here is faith. Both involve faith and both involve the physical touch of Jesus. Jairus begs Jesus to come and touch his daughter to heal her. The nameless woman sneaks up and touches the garment of Jesus. And as we'll see, the woman is, is actually exemplary. She's the great exemplar of faith in the story. Jairus, the synagogue official, is a little waffly. He starts out great, but after he hears that uh, his daughter has died, he starts to uh, waver a bit. And Jesus graciously comes along, don't be afraid, only believe, which is a great motto for all of life. We'll get to that next week. Don't be afraid, only believe. And also, the nameless woman and the little girl by the end of the story are both identified as what? Daughters. They're both called daughters. And Jesus has to pause, or actually, he doesn't have to, but he pauses to heal this nameless woman as he's going to heal Jairus' daughter. And the very pause to heal this nameless woman is what gives time for Jairus' daughter to die. So you see, these are interlocked stories. We can't just tease them out here and separate them. But Mark brings them together because that's the way it happened. Now, there are certainly more points of overlap between these two stories, but you get the idea. For Mark, he's presenting to us these two accounts in an interconnected way because the interconnectedness of it is vital. And it sets up, really, this wonderful scenario where Jesus gets His arms of mercy around both extremes of the social spectrum. This woman who is nameless and nothing in society, and Jairus who is something and noble in society. It's a good reminder that there is no one outside of the reach of the mercy of our Lord. So let's get into the text together. We begin in verse 21, which sort of sets the scene for us. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, remember, he's coming back from uh, healing the demoniac or casting out legion. So he comes back across. Remember, the initial way over was calming the storm. They get there, defeat legion, establish commission, the first missionary. And then they come back to Galilee And a large crowd, verse 21, gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. So, once again, we're back by the Sea of Galilee, the lake really, where Jesus did most of his ministry. And a large crowd, so large uh, that Jesus sort of decides to just stay right there, is waiting for him on the shore. They get off the boat, the crowd is a throng of people pushing in on him, and so he's sort of forced to just stay where he is. In verse 22, we meet the first character of the story, Jairus. And he's identified as one of the synagogue officials. In our outline, we're calling him a leading man. A leading man, because that's exactly what he was. He was a synagogue official, which would have put him in an influential role and indicates that he would have had some status among the Jewish community there. Now, just to remind you, Uh, The synagogue, as you know, is not the temple. The temple's in Jerusalem, and that was the one temple. But throughout the Mediterranean world, there were these smaller meeting places for Jewish, the Jewish community called synagogues. 
And these synagogues functioned as sort of like a community center during the week. But on the Sabbath, they were for uh, they were the designated place of worship. And that worship included the following. Scripture reading, followed by an exposition or explanation of the passage, followed by prayers and singing, and then a closing benediction. It's very similar to what we do and the Christian tradition has done. These were the fundamental elements. Scripture, exposition, prayer, singing, benediction. Nothing highly liturgical, nothing over the top or complicated. Scripture, exposition, prayer, singing, benediction. I repeat that because I'm trying to make an argument for what we do here. The simplicity of worship. Now someone had to get all this organized every week in the synagogue. Someone's got to organize. And that person was the ruler of the synagogue. It was his job, the ruler of the synagogue, or sometimes there were several. It was their job to organize the services each week, maintain the building, procure scrolls for scripture reading. And even, this was surprising to me, even oversee the orthodoxy of the rabbis. All of that fell to the ruler of the synagogue. He was that trusted that his job was to make sure everything was great with the synagogue, even to the point of orthodoxy. And what's interesting here is that Mark does, doesn't typically name the people in his stories. But he names Jairus here, which suggests that not only was Jairus a prominent figure in this area, probably in Capernaum, but he was probably known beyond that. Uh, he would have been well known. He, the name Jairus would have triggered um, familiarity with everyone. Probably something like the name Eamon Carter here. Right? It's Okay, yeah, we know that name. I've seen it on a billboard. I've seen it on a sign. I've seen the museum. Maybe you don't know the history, but at least it's a, a recognizable name. And in verse 22, we're told that as soon as this prominent leader in society, as soon as he sees Jesus, he comes up to him and falls at his feet. Now, that's remarkable for a number of reasons. One, he's a dignified man. He would have prized honor, societal norms. All of that would have been part of his uh, makeup. And so for him to fall down at Jesus' feet would have, you know, it really communicates the height of his desperation. You know, all of his uh, pretense is thrown out the window. Right? He's in an urgent, dire situation. But it's also remarkable because, remember, in chapter 3, the official delegation of scribes had come from Jerusalem. And what was their evaluation of Jesus? Wonderful guy, we should all follow him. Listen to him. No, their evaluation, Mark 3.22, was he's, uh, he's demon-possessed or he's on Satan's side, he's doing what he's doing by the power of Beelzebul. Don't listen to him. He's a false teacher. Get away from him. And that was their official declaration. And so he, Jesus then, has been declared to be a false teacher, empowered by Satan and the demons. And so when Jairus, and he's a leader of the synagogues, he's connected to this. He would have heard the report. Okay, this is the official synopsis of this man. Okay, now act accordingly. So for Jairus to say, here's my dignity, I throw it out. I don't care about societal norms, I'm throwing it out. And on top of that, for him to say, 
I'm going to stand against the scribal delegation from Jerusalem. And I'm going to come and fall down at this man's feet and beg him to meet my need. All of that was a, a massive stand and step for Jairus. And it shows how desperate he was. The type of behavior of throwing yourself, prostrating yourself before someone was reserved for the presence of kings or for the worship of a deity. And what Jairus' prostration communicates is that he recognizes that Jesus is no ordinary man. He sees all the authority and power. Mark's been arguing for five chapters. He's powerful. He's authoritative. Jairus sees it. He sees that Jesus is the promised King and Son of God, and he falls down at Jesus' feet in his hour of need. In verse 23, we read that he implored him earnestly. Quite literally, he earnestly begged Jesus. That's the idea. He came up, he fell down, and he begged Jesus, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. We learn in verse 42 that this little girl is actually 12. In this society, she was of marriageable age. So she's not literally a little girl, but the language communicates Jairus' affections for his 12-year-old daughter. She's his little girl. She's his little girl. It doesn't matter how old she is. Right, Dad? I mean, you get that. It doesn't matter how old she is. She's my little girl. And that's the way it is here. She, her identity is my little girl. I love her. I'm, my affections are for her. My love runs deep for her. She is, and will always be, regardless of who she's married to, my little girl. He loves her. And at this moment, his heart is breaking as he sees her on the brink of death. And he wants to help her. And he's a man of means. But he doesn't have the ability to give his little girl what she needs. He has the wealth, most likely. He has the influence, most likely, to get the best doctors, the most um, trained professional help he could get. But his money, his power, his influence could not get him what he needed to save his daughter. And he is, at this moment, having a crisis of resources. He realizes that he is insufficient in himself, therefore he goes to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he recognizes him for who he is, and he falls down and begs him to save his daughter. Now she's in critical condition, on the brink of death. In fact, she's so close to death that Matthew, in Matthew's account, uh, Matthew says that she's already dead. And the idea there is that she's basically dead at this point. There's really nothing that can be done. And so this really is Jairus' last chance to save his little girl. And so despite the societal pressure that would have pulled him away from following Jesus, he finally comes to the point where he counts the cost and he comes to Jesus. And you feel that. Some of you may be here this morning and you feel the pressure. I don't want to follow Jesus because uh, my, what my friends might think. I don't want to follow Jesus because what my parents might think. It would cost too much to leave my Catholic heritage to come and follow Jesus. Well, we feel your pain. And Jesus feels your pain as well. 
But God will bring you to a place where your desperation is high enough, where you no longer think about what other people think about you, and you come to Jesus for Jesus' sake. And this is where Jairus was. So he counts the cost, he comes to Jesus, he bows down to him, and he pleads with Jesus that Jesus would be merciful to his daughter. And verse 23 is clear. Jairus believes, he's convinced, that if Jesus will come and touch his daughter, that she will get well and live. He's convinced of that. So what do we call that? What would you call that? What is Jairus exercising here? Faith. Faith. We call it faith. Jairus understands and is convinced that just a touch from Jesus will heal his daughter. And that's faith. Now, it's not a robust faith. Uh, he doesn't know all the ins and outs of, of what G, who Jesus really is, perhaps, and what uh, you know, his theology is all messed up. So is this nameless woman's theology. And we'll see that Jesus is going to iron that out for her. But at this moment, he comes with the little bitty faith that he has in desperation. He throws it onto Jesus, throws himself onto Jesus. But here's the key thing about his faith. It's simple. Not simple in the sense that it's simplistic. It's simple in the sense that it's genuine and sincere. That's, that's the key element here of Jairus' faith. It's sincere. It's free from guile and duplicity. It's no longer am I doing this for show. All of a sudden, he is 100% genuine and he throws himself onto Jesus without hypocrisy without pretense. Now, how do we know that? Because he has stripped himself of all his worldly dignity, essentially. And he comes to Jesus in full desperation. Really, he comes as a child. Actually, this morning, I won't name names, but this morning there was a child I saw, and I, I pity you because I also have a child that hard training children. It's a tough job, and the Lord is merciful to us. Um, the child on the ground, crying right in front of the door. And I thought, no adult would do that. Why? Well, because we're too dignified. I mean, you may cry in your heart, you may yell, you may kick and scream, you may do something extreme. But no adult would fall on the ground in front of the glass doors and just cry. Why? Even though you're having a really bad day. Because you're dignified, right? Well, Jairus just sort of strips all that away and he throws himself on the ground and says, help me, Jesus, I need it. That's childlike faith. It's genuine, it's sincere, the faith of a child. It's a faith that simply believes and trusts God. And this is the type of faith, my friend, that is provocative to Jesus. Provocative in the sense that it provokes him to act for you. A faith that is simple, genuine, sincere, childlike. God says it. I believe it. He says he, he, he will be my helper. He says he sits on a throne of grace and will give me help in time of need. Okay, I'm going to him to get help. Jesus sees Jairus exercise a sincere, simple faith, and Jesus is provoked to act. He looks at his desperation. He sees Jairus stripped of his dignity, and he's at the bottom of life in this moment, and he sees his faith, and he doesn't despise him. He doesn't lump Jairus in with the other religious elite who have rejected him. Jesus doesn't mock him or look down on him. He doesn't say, look, Jairus, this is what it means to live in a fallen world. People die, okay? Get it together. 
And, that, and as a matter of fact, you did this to yourself. You sinned. The wages of sin is death. This is on you. How do you think I feel? You've lived your whole life rebelling against me. How do you think that makes me feel? This is what you deserve. That is not what Jesus says. Could, could he say that? Well, certainly. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. I mean, the wages of sin are death. We, we are the ones responsible for sin in the world. Our sin, of course. That is all true. But Jesus doesn't come to us when we've done the foolish thing, when we're in our hour of need. He doesn't come to us and say, well, look, you did this to yourself. It's on you. You made the foolish decision to invest your finances here. Now you can't pay your bills. It's on you. That's not the posture of our Lord. He looks at this man who's in desperation but exercising a simple faith and he sees that faith and is provoked to be merciful to him. It's the same for you and I. When he sees you wriggling around under the mess that you have made, he doesn't come to you and chastise you. You maybe need to be chastised, and that's, a part, of course, we have to accept the consequences of our foolish decisions. That's true. But God, when he comes to us, comes to us to help us in Christ. So verse 24, Jairus makes his request. Jesus says, no, I'm too busy. I wish you well. No. Verse 24a, he went off with him. And at that moment, Jairus' daughter is virtually healed. Not physically, of course. We know that how this goes. But she's fine. She's going to be fine. Why? Because Jesus is on the job. <laughs> Everything is going to be okay. Jesus is here. Jesus is engaged to help Jairus. Everything is going to be just fine. And what we see from Jesus here is that he demonstrates mercy, not just to the aggregate, not just to the world at large. We often think in these big general terms, and sometimes people will try to pull us into that and say, well, we need to be think, think more collectively about Christianity. Western society is too individualistic. Okay, um, we won't get into that. But here, of course, Jesus is generally merciful. But who is he merciful towards here? Jairus. He's merciful towards this man who's in need and exercises faith. And since Jairus comes in the simplicity of his faith, Jesus puts down his agenda for the day and focuses on this man, Jairus. All right, so if you, if you think of God, if you conceive of God as generally merciful, that's going to be of little help to you. Just honestly, as you live your life, it's not that helpful to you that God is generally merciful. Because it'll lead to these kind of thoughts. Well, God will be merciful to the Roland family, but he's not going to be merciful to my family. Well, God may be merciful to this family generally, but you know he's only got so much to share. It leads to these sort of quirky, odd theological convictions that we all share, that we all need to get corrected by Scripture. If you think God is generally merciful, you're right, but you've stopped short of reality. God is not just generally a merciful God. In Christ, he is merciful towards you. And once you get that, it'll change your life. And so this is what the Lord does. The Lord puts down his agenda for the day, and he goes and sets out to meet Jairus' need. And that's, of course, the heart of Christ. He's not too busy for individual sinners. His agenda is not so rigid that he does not have time for individual complaints and needs. He drops his program for the day 
and diverts his attention to this man. And the Lord does this again and again for all those who come to him in faith. In fact, the Lord is constrained. He's constrained to help all of those who come to him in simple faith. He's constrained. I say constrained, and I've said it several times, because we need to understand that God is constrained not because we are so worthy of His his attention. Now we're His children and we can just, you know, boss Him around and sort of rule the roost. No, God is constrained to be merciful for, to us because it's His very nature to alleviate the misery of His sons and daughters. That's His nature. That's what mercy does. I mean, how many of you want your children to be miserable? God is constrained because His nature is to alleviate the misery of His people. And when we come to Him in faith, so this is the indicative theological reality. This is the way God is. He is merciful. Now you match that with a simple childlike faith. And there's a double pull on God, as it were, to act for you. His natural inclination and your simple childlike trust in Him. And this combination compels Jesus in this moment to meet Jairus' need, and it does the same for you and I. We come to Jesus knowing that He's merciful, but we come in simple faith, and Jesus is compelled to act, to meet us, to help us, to be merciful and gracious to us. So, on the one hand, the moment these two men walk off together, everything's okay. Jesus is engaged to help, and come what may, Jairus is in Jesus' care. But on the other hand, this is still a critical moment. And his daughter is still on uh, the lifeline. She's declining, and so naturally, if you just put yourself in Jairus' shoes, what are you thinking? We've got to get there. All right, Jesus, I trust you, Jesus, but come on. All right. I trust you, Jesus, but let's pick up the pace. How many of you have said that before? All right, I trust you, Jesus, but let's get on it. You know, let's, let's move. And you can imagine Jairus' posture is something like that. And then verse 24 says this, And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So this crowd is following Jesus, but they're also pressing in on him. The word is literally is to press together or to press from all sides. That's the idea. So here's Jesus, come on Jesus, or here's Jairus saying, come on Jesus, let's go. And the crowd is sort of swarming them. You can imagine how Jairus must have felt in this moment. Every moment is precious because his daughter is declining. The crowds keep pressing in. And you can't get to your daughter to save her. I don't think I'm sanctified to respond graciously in that kind of scenario. I mean, I think if it's me, I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm saying, get out of the way, get out of the way. You know, I'm doing all that I can to make a way, you know, kind of John the Baptist. Let's make a way for Jesus to get through and get to my daughter. But that's not the way this goes down. Jesus is never hurried and he's never panicked. He's always on time. He lives in perfect peace and he carried himself in perfect peace on this planet because he always rested in his father's providential care. Is Jesus not, or is the, the father not in charge of the crowd? Yes, he is. 
If he could split a sea, he could split this crowd. Okay, this is all in the Lord's hands. Let's just walk and make our way as quickly as we can and trust the Father's care. Jesus also was never too busy to meet the needs of any of those who came to him by faith. And we see that in this passage. As they're going their way to heal the little girl, a woman, a nameless woman, comes up. And she distracts Jesus, as it were, from getting to Jairus' daughter. But despite the urgency of the situation, this is a remarkable thing, Jesus makes time for her. And she's a no, nothing of society, outcast, get away, she's unclean, yet Jesus makes time for her. Verse 24 to 34. So here she is. She's a woman who is at the very bottom of the societal structure. And Mark, similar to the way he described the demoniac in chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, he gives a detailed description of this woman and her problem. So this isn't just a passing comment about the misery of this woman. This is a, a, a detailed account of this dear woman and her struggles. In verse 25, we're told that she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Literally, she had a flow of blood for 12 years. This is probably referring to a chronic uterine hemorrhage that would have rendered this woman in a constant state of pain and discomfort. The situation is so bad. This is 12 years of that. You can only imagine. The situation is so bad that in verse 29, it's described as a whip or lashing. It's the Greek word. It's mastics, which... Is translated as affliction in English, but it literally means a whip or a lashing or a scourging. This is her life. Twelve years of this. Whip after whip after whip. Misery day after day after day. So this, this is not a minor ordeal. This is a major chronic health issue in this woman's life. And the repercussions actually go beyond just the physical and extended to the social dimensions as well. To have this kind of hemorrhage would have rendered her not only unclean, but untouchable. So it could be that she was 12 years old when this started, which is a marriageable age. She's had this for 12 years. And this would have prevented her from being married, perhaps. Because if you touched her, then you had to spend a day uh, in ritual bath to establish your own uh, cleanliness. Or maybe she got it after she was married and likely would have been divorced for that reason. So her misery is compounded, really, not just the physically, but the social dimensions. I mean, it's like, you know, when you're sick, you want someone there to bring you some soup to take care of you. She doesn't have that. She doesn't have that at all. She has no one to sympathize or commiserate with her. She's all alone. No one to help her bear or live day in, day out, navigate the complexities of life. And verse 26 tells us that, you know, her situation is such that naturally she sought help from doctors. And actually the text says that she endured much at the hands of doctors. And none of them were able to help her. She had basically, though, spent all of her money in desperation trying to get relief from her misery. And as a consequence, she's now exhausted 
all of her resources to be cured of her sickness. And tragically, in spite of all of her efforts, she's now poor, she's broke, she's spent all her money. And tragically, despite all of that, verse 26 says that her situation has only grown worse. So here she is. Chronically ill, hopeless, poor, and lonely. But she has sense enough to go to Jesus. And there she found true help, hope, and refreshment. She's at the bottom here. She's at the bottom of society, at the bottom of her own hopes. She's tried everything. But verse 27 tells us that somewhere along the way, verse 27, she heard about Jesus. You see that in the text? Hearing about Jesus. We're not sure how or when she heard, but she heard this man. She heard about this man who was rumored to be the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And she heard that he was healing the sick, calming storms, teaching with incredible power, and she had a glimmer of hope. All of a sudden, maybe Jesus can fix my problem. And verse 28 tells us actually exactly what she's thinking. Verse 28. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And that was her driving thought. If I can just get through this throng of people and touch his garments, then I will be well. And she, she's making proper conclusions. And she understands Isaiah 53. The Messiah will heal us of all of our diseases. And she understands that this man has healed other people, and if I can touch him, then he can bring me some relief as well. And she simply believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And so in verse 27, we're told that she comes up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment, and verse 29 says that immediately... The flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. No words, no theatrics, nothing visible at all. She just touches Jesus and instantly 12 years of misery are reversed or ended. In fact, as we read the story, we realize that were it not for Jesus in verse 30, recognizing that something has happened, we would never have heard this woman's story at all. And she would have sort of disappeared and no one would have ever heard about this nameless woman. In fact, it seems like, as you read, it seems like that's what she wanted. To get healed and then be able to disappear without anyone knowing what had happened. Now just think about this. What did I say about this woman? She's unclean, right? So if she touches anyone, they're unclean for a day. So should she be out in the crowd? rubbing shoulders with all these people? No. We're talking about the shame that she would receive if, if people recognized that she was the woman. So probably she's sort of veiled over. She's trying to be sneaky. She's trying to elusively come in, touch the garment, be healed, and get out. Right? Get out of town. And then lay low for a while. In verse 30, Jesus perceives, as she touches him, Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the implication there is that he doesn't really immediately see the woman. He turns around, Who did that? And so he asked the disciples who it was who touched him, and they're utterly unhelpful. 
And so in verse 32, he starts looking himself. If he can find the woman. And the grammar of verse 32 suggests that Jesus had to look for a little while. The text literally reads, he was looking around. And the implication there is that it took him some time to find her. She wasn't just right there behind him. He had to look. The disciples said, we don't even know. But Jesus set out to find her. So maybe, uh, we don't know exactly why, uh, maybe she touched him and ran away because of she, her fear. Maybe the crowds had just sort of engulfed her. She fell down and is overwhelmed at what happened to her. And we know that she is. But we're not sure if she ran away trying to hide or if she just got engulfed by the crowd. At any rate, Jesus is looking for her and she seems to be hiding from him. And in verse 33, we're told why. She's terrified. Look at verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She is fearing and trembling. This is not a paternal fear of a son to his father. This is a fear and dread of what is about to come her way. And she realizes that she has been healed and that her simple faith was rightly placed onto Jesus. But what does that mean? If he heals her, then he is who he says he is. And all of a sudden she realizes she has just touched as an unclean woman the garments of God. She took a risk and it turned out that she was right. But the consequences, she realizes, might be the end of her life. She's healed. But what happens when unclean people get in the presence of a holy God? Ask Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. He's of purer eyes, Malachi 3, than to look upon evil. And no unclean thing can enter his presence. And here she is, she's touched the garment of God, and now she's trembling, aware that her new health may be short-lived. So she cowers down in fear and trembling, fully aware of what has happened to her, hoping that she can hide and escape the potential wrath that's coming her way. But does Jesus let her hide? No. The Lord does not let her hide. He hunts her down. Her simple faith has provoked him. He's going to find her. And so he goes looking for her. She knows that he's coming. All of a sudden, there's something happening in the crowd. So she's hiding. She realized that something's happening. She realized that she can't escape the all-seeing eye of the Messiah. And so she comes to him, casts herself at his feet, and tells him, verse 33, the whole truth. Even the language of that is like, she's guilty of something. Tell me the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So she tells him the whole truth. Probably she lays out for him the whole story of her life, what she did and why she did it, and she's probably a babbling mess before the Holy God. You can imagine what her posture and countenance is like. And after she finishes her rambling, babbling, weeping probably, she braces herself to receive the wrath she deserves. And in the most shocking moment of her life, the God of heaven, the Messiah, 
looks at her with eyes of mercy. And verse 34 says this, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's amazing. Amazing. She's not a daughter. She's a sinner. But she encounters Christ and she's transformed into a saint and a daughter. Her simple faith is met with tender compassion. Jesus doesn't reproach her for touching him while she was unclean. Look, lady, don't you know I've got work to do? Now I've got to go back home and do this stuff so I can come out here and minister again. Probably the disciples would have said, look, lady, he's got work to do. Leave him alone. Jesus looks at her. He doesn't reproach her for touching him. He doesn't reproach her for breaking societal norms. He doesn't reproach her at all. He looks at her with a pitying eye. And he listens to her story. He hears what she's done, why she did it. And he looks at her full of affection and gives her a name. calls her daughter. For 12 years, she's been cut off from every friend, family member she has. Now all of a sudden she realizes this is the Messiah King in front of me, the man with all authority. And now he just called me daughter. What kind of God is this? And that moment she exchanges 12 years of pain, sorrow, and isolation for a title that is greater than any treasure. She goes from being a nameless outcast to being a daughter of God. And here Jesus is using the title as an indicator of his affection for her. In the story, it's analogous to the love that Jairus has for his own daughter. This is my little girl. You can see Jairus loves this little girl. And now Jesus looks at her and says, Little girl, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus will not be outdone by Jairus. You think you love your daughter? You will not and can never outdo Jesus' love for you. His affection, His mercy. You can't. And this text demonstrates that. Jairus, you can't, you can't love your daughter any more than what Jairus is willing to do. He lays it all down to go take care of his daughter. And Jesus will not be outdone because anyone can love their biological daughter. Right? You should. If you don't, there's something really wrong. But here is a woman who's unworthy of any love, any pity, any compassion, who's broken the law. She should be cast out. She should be ostracized. And now she, she should be essentially cast out for sure because she has touched the garment of God. But Jesus looks at her and declares her to be a daughter. And I want you to see something very important here uh, as we sort of bring this to a close. In this moment, all of a sudden, this woman's theology is totally recalibrated. Totally recalibrated. Before, she was afraid to approach Jesus because she knew that she was unworthy. She didn't come before Jesus and bow down like Jairus did. She comes behind. She's trying to be elusive. 
And then when she does touch him, she runs from him in fear because she knew that he was holy and she deserved his wrath for touching him while she was unclean. But all of a sudden, now she recognizes that God is not only holy, but he is merciful. And she sees that there is a wideness in God's mercy that doesn't nullify his holiness, but actually his holiness magnifies and amplifies his mercy. And that such a God, she knows this is the Messiah, God incarnate, that such a God would stoop so low and wrap his arms around her is staggering, but it's reality. So now this woman has to recalibrate her theology and start living in the light of God's holiness and God's mercy. Before, she, she sort of got the holiness dimension, but not fully. If she really got it, she probably wouldn't have touched his garment. Um, but she gets the idea. But now there's an added element to her theology that needs to be recalibrated. And I'll just say, if, when was the last time your theology was recalibrated? All right, when was the last time you, you edited your version or your understanding of theology proper, the character of God? If that's not happening to you, to you as you're reading the Bible... You, you need to check in. Because our lives are essentially just a constant recalibration onto who God really is. And in this moment, this lady has some terrible theology, and Jesus comes in, and he starts modifying and recalibrating it. And so now she knows God is holy and merciful. She should have known that in the Old Testament. I mean, God is merciful and holy, abounding in steadfast love. But there's something about experiencing it in the moment. And now, rather than running from Jesus in fear, she can run to him and expect that she will be received because he is a merciful and gracious God and has declared her to be his daughter. That changes the way you come to Jesus with your problems. I've said this before and I'll say it again and again. You've not really begun to live the Christian life until you start to see yourself as a son or daughter of God. Until you see that God is truly your loving, merciful, patient, long-suffering, good, and gracious Father, you, you will have no joy in life. Are you miserable? Are you depressed? Are you discouraged? Are you downcast? Friend, I would, I would venture to guess that you are not thinking about God accurately. You will be miserable as long as you think God is always angry with you and disappointed with you when you fail. There's no way you could be happy. And some of you have mom and dads, moms and dads that were that way. You never could satisfy them. Was that a joyful, blissful you know, childhood memory? No, you, you can't live with joy and think God is angry and upset with you at your failure all the time. You, you can't have that. If you think God is always let down by your performance and failure, He's just sort of waiting around to say, oh, Randy, you, you failed again. How many times do I have to tell you? How many times do I have to come and pick you back up? How many times do you blow it? If you think that's God's posture towards you, you will never be happy. You'll be miserable. And you'll, I'll tell you this, you'll make everyone around you miserable. You know why? Because you tend to treat people the way you think God looks at you. You're a perfectionist. You hold everyone else to that perfectionist standard. 
You, I would imagine that you think God is upset with you all the time because when you fail that standard. Right? You tend to treat people the way you think God looks at you. If you think God is gracious and merciful and kind and patient with you and your failings, how do you think that's going to help you treat your children, your parents? Right? You treat people the way you think God looks at you and treats you. So if you realize that God is a loving Father and that in Christ He looks at you with a heart full of mercy, that He remembers your frame, that you are but dust, Psalm 103. He understands how hard it is for us to live in a fallen world. And He sympathizes with us in our weakness. If you start musing, meditating on that reality, it'll transform the way you live. Here's what I'm trying to say. Listen closely. If you are in Christ, you have to realize that God doesn't look at you as if you are a big disappointment. He looks at you trying to be faithful in a fallen world, trying to find a godly spouse, trying to raise your kids well, trying to resolve conflicts, trying to work to His glory. He looks at you in all your failures. And He loves you. And He pities you because He understands that life in this fallen world is hard. He remembers our frame. He remembers the curse. He hasn't forgotten Genesis 3. I mean, He knows. He knows it's tough. He knows the pressures. He knows the temptations. And He pities us and He looks at you in your struggle and He comes to you with arms of mercy. And what that means for us is that we don't have to run from Him anymore. You blow it, you made a foolish decision again, don't run in the crowd. Don't try to hide from him. Go to him. He will meet you with mercy, just like the prodigal, right? When the prodigal returns, he doesn't find the father he expected. He finds a father with arms of mercy. And all of this, of course, is based on the finished work of Christ. It reminds me of the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger. Nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. That's what He requires. And Christian, if you feel that need and express it, then He is provoked to show you mercy. Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for giving us such a Savior as Christ. We will forever sing His praises, and we love Him. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to love Him more. Though we have not seen Him, we love Him. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Help us, Lord, to walk that out more and more each day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.